Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to Acts of the Apostles. We are in the very first chapter, and we're looking at verses 4 through 11 this morning. And it's on page 909 in your pew Bibles if you want to use that. Or, well, it's printed in your bulletin, so we make things really easy for you here. I have a book in my library titled Last Words of Saints and Sinners. It's kind of thick. It's got 700 final words from, well, you guessed it, saints and sinners. Consider the last dying words of the Roman Emperor Vespasian in 70 AD. Alas, I suppose I am turning into a god. An emperor should die standing. And he stood. And he died. Or the last words of one of the most brutal persecutors of the Christian church, Emperor Severus. Listen to what he says. I have been everything, and everything is nothing. A little urn will contain all that remains of one for whom the whole world was too little. Or the last words of some Christians, Daniel Webster, who died in 1852, dictated these final words for his tombstone. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Or Sir Edward Coke in 1634, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now, have you ever wondered what your last words will be? I know it's kind of morbid, but from time to time I, I think about it. And, and probably my last words will be something like this. Hey, watch this. <laughs> or, or, what the? <laughs> Most people's last words are heard by no one. And if they are, few take care to listen and study them. But consider this now. The words we are about to read are Jesus' very last words. The disciples, they woke up that morning thinking that this resurrected Jesus would be them for, with them for a long time to come, for decade upon decade. But then Jesus says these last 53 words to them. And then within like two seconds, he rises out of sight. And they are left standing there, bewildered with their jaws on the ground, wondering what just happened. This morning, let us know these last words of Jesus so that we may become all that he calls us to be. Book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. Listen, please. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, angels, right? And said, men of Galilee, why 
do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us this morning. Precious words. Words for us to treasure. Words to to guide us. They are words of our Savior. His final words before he departed from this earth. We're thankful we have even more words in Scripture. But for now, may we study these words. May your Spirit dwell in us richly that we may understand more who our Savior is calling us to be. Amen. Have you ever asked a question that proved that you really didn't know what you're talking about? I'm not the only one, right? Well, that is what his disciples do. Jesus had recently risen from the grave. He got his disciples to gather around, and no doubt they're enjoying this time with him. But then Jesus changes the subject from the Women's World Cup soccer match. And it says in verses 4 and 5, he says, not to depart from Jerusalem because the Heavenly Father will fulfill this wonderful promise to you. See, what's going on is there's a major turning point in the kingdom, and it's happening. Yet we see the disciples continue to get it wrong, as they always seem to do. How so? Well, let's look at the question that they ask in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? John Calvin, in commenting on this this question of the disciples, he said, there are as many errors in this question as words. (laughs) John Stott writes, the verb and the noun and the adverb all betray confusion about the kingdom. The verb restore shows that they were expecting a political, territorial kingdom. The noun Israel shows that they were expecting a national kingdom, a kingdom of only Jews, And the adverbial clause at this time shows that they were expecting its immediate establishment. Picture what's going on in their minds, right? Jesus had called them like three years ago to come follow him, and they left everything behind, and they followed him. And on those, during those three years, Jesus continually talked about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is in your midst, but it's coming in its more fullness. And, and remember, they even fought. Jesus told them, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, um, then I'm going to rise again. And they were just like, all they could think about was, when you come into your kingdom, can I sit on your right and maybe he on your left, right? They were thinking about these things. But then their hopes were defeated as Jesus dies. But then, he's resurrected from the dead, and now he's with them. And they're probably thinking, wow, the game is back on. Jesus will now establish the kingdom, and what a king he will be, and we'll finally get to be respected. He's going to prove all of our doubters wrong, and we'll be honored guests sitting on thrones by him. Jesus will become our political leader. He'll drive out the Romans out of Judea. He will sit on an earthly throne and rule from there. And imagine, he can heal the sick. So talk about universal health coverage. (laughs) He can turn five fish into a meal for 5,000. Talk about welfare program. Oh boy, this is going to be good for us. 
We too can think along those lines, can we not? Like the disciples, we can view Christ or Christianity as something that we add to our lives, something to complete what is otherwise a pretty decent existence. My career plus Jesus will make things grand. My good-looking family plus Jesus will give me a complete life. Or mistakenly, we think that Jesus came to be our political, uh, that Jesus' kingdom is political in nature, and so instead of witnessing, we battle against the state. In our passage, Jesus says, says to his disciples that he, that he saved them so that they could be something. You will be my witnesses. Instead of earthly thrones next to Jesus, they will have to travel the world being a witness of the resurrected Christ. My friends, those final words weren't just for those disciples back then. They're for us here today. This morning we're going to study those words and we'll learn what it means when Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses. Jesus calls his followers to be his witnesses. Is that not clear? But what does he mean? What does it look like? How are we to pull it off? Well, we're going to study that under three headings, which I stole from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I didn't steal the message from him. Just these three headings. The rest is... Is mine, but first is this. There are some things which are not for us. That's what we see here. Next, something there for us to receive. And lastly, something for us to be. First, some things are not for us. Do you remember the Christian leader Hale Camping? Many times he prophesied over his life. He predicted that when the rapture of the church and the judgment of God would take place, First, he predicted a judgment day that would occur on or about September 6th, 1994. When it failed to occur, he revised the date to September 29th and, and then later to October 2nd. Of course, it never happened. And then in 2005, Camping predicted the second coming of Christ would be on May 21st, 2011, and it would culminate in God's judgment on October 21st, 2011. Well... I'm sure maybe many of you remember these predictions, right? The news media mocked and scorned and ridiculed and laughed and as they covered this story. We watched as, as this guy's followers, they, they quit their jobs and they sold everything listening to this man. And guess what? Camping was wrong. And the atheists and the non-atheists alike ridiculed camping in particular and us Christians in general. Now, can we all agree that Harold Camping's predictions were foolish? More than that, they, they were not a good witness, but a bad witness to the watching world. And yet, still to this day, some Christians seem to spend all of their time and energy endlessly tracking through the Bible, studying the end times, trying to predict when Christ will return. Every sermon somehow ends up talking about the rapture, or the Antichrist, or the mark of the beast, or the current state of affairs in modern-day nation of Israel. Don't get me wrong. It's good and wise for Christians to, to, to study what is called eschatology. It's a study of the, the end times, the way things will come to pass. But as witnesses of Jesus Christ, we need to listen to the angels and stop gazing into the heavens and get about who we are called to be. In our text this morning, Jesus says, some things are not for us. Look at verse 7. And he said to them, it is not for you to know 
times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So first, there's some things we need to see that are, that are not possible for us. Before Jesus died, he spoke of his second coming, and his disciples were like, okay, tell us about it. When's it going to happen? And, and you can read about that in Matthew 24. But Jesus replied, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even angels of heaven, nor the Son, he's talking of himself, but the Father only. And Jesus concluded his teaching, though. He said, he said essentially, let me summarize, and this is a little mini-sermon. There you go, two and one. Uh, the, what he's saying there is, it's not for you to know the times, but be ready, right? He is coming. You will not know when he comes. Just be ready for it. Be my witnesses. So, Christian, it's not even possible for you to know when Christ will return to usher in this final installment of the kingdom. It could be any day. Now, though, I don't know if you know this, but if you look back in history and you read writings of Christians all the way along, every generation of Christians thought what? That their generation was the generation that would be on earth when Christ returns. Every generation. You even see it in the, in the book of Thessalonians, right? Jesus is coming tomorrow, right? Every generation of Christians. So what if I were to say to you that it could be another 2,000 years or more before Christ returned? Some of you are perhaps thinking, I don't think that pastor knows his Bible. I kind of do know my Bible, not that I can't learn more, but in my Bible, Jesus says he is returning, and no one knows exactly when except the Father in heaven. (laughs) But I do know what Jesus has called us to do. He calls us to stop gazing into heaven, be ready, be my witnesses. Now, let me ask you, If somehow I really did know when Jesus was returning and I told you, could it not have like a really negative effect, right? If I told you Jesus wasn't coming back for another 50 years, would you not be tempted to slack in your calling to be a witness for Christ? I need not be prayerful concerning my lost brother. I need not work on allowing the light of Christ to shine through me just yet. I've got time. What if I told you he was returning in five days? Holy cow. Think of the frantic activity. Hey, mom, you got time for me? Okay. Uh, I'm going to go talk to my boss today, right? Um, My friends, it is impossible for us to know the times or the seasons. But it is possible for us to be ready, to be witnesses for Christ each day. This is our great calling. So Jesus says some things are not for us, but he also says there is something for us to receive. You know, they say breakfast is the most important meal of the day. If you start your day without putting fuel into your body, you will lack power to do well on an exam or focus at your desk or lift a lot of weights in the gym. Jesus here is saying something similar, but far more important, uh, something far more important in our lives than a, than a bowl of fruity pebbles. In verse 8, Jesus tells us there's something for us to receive that will give us power to be his witnesses throughout the world. Look at that, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As we think about it, right, we haven't even looked at what being a witness is in much detail, but I think we can kind of get a sense that, that being a witness for Christ in his kingdom is hard, right? It's tiresome. It's physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausting. And you do it with other Christians who 
can tick you off, you know. I mean, it's hard. It's tiring. There's much need of grace and mercy. But thankfully, Christ who calls us to be his witnesses gives us something that empowers us to be his witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now think of Peter who was there, right? His personality was what, right? His personality was to act first, think later, right? Shoot first, then aim. (laughs) Jesus tells Peter and the others to wait. Don't start going out and talking about me just yet. You must wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power. Then you will be able to be my witnesses. Jesus knows something that is so critically important. It's so hard to be a witness for Jesus that we need divine help from above. I don't know about you, but think it through. I'm quite a bit like Peter. I can get busy doing work, even good work, kingdom work, without pausing in humility and asking, God, will you give me power today? Can I really love your kingdom more than my own kingdom? Can you, can you, can you help Mark to put off the old Mark and put on the, the new Mark, which is this beautiful thing Jesus wants to do in my life? I don't know about you, but I can start today just going out the door and getting things done and checking off my, my to-doist list. My friends, think about it. Being a witness of the resurrected Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom to the ends of the world is an impossible work unless God is present with you. For us today, we live 2,000 years since the day the Holy Spirit was poured out upon Christ's church. Just because the Spirit is present with us does not mean that we always have the Spirit's power upon us. You and I must ask in faith and in humility God, will you give me the power to latch on, the power to do? We see this in Luke chapter 11. Jesus tells his disciples just how willing God is to answer prayer. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. And Jesus says, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, perfect, good, loving, kind, gracious, always wanting to give, give what? Give what to you? What is the example Jesus uses to ask for what? How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him? Of all the things Christians could ask of their Heavenly Father, better job, you know, more agreeable spouse, you know, I don't know, four-wheel drive truck for the beach. Of all the things that we can ask, Jesus uses the example of asking for what we need most, which is the Spirit of God to rest on us. And he says, if you ask the Father for the Holy Spirit, what should you expect? A serpent? 
No, the Holy Spirit, the very divine Spirit of God himself. Picture yourself doing some yard work and walking by you the whole day is a very strong, wise man who is only there to help. But you never ask for any help. You never ask, what do you think? Should I move those plants from over there to over here? Should, do you think it would look good to maybe plant some flowers here? You never ask. You never ask, would you help me spread this giant pile of mulch? You never ask. That's a simplified picture of us, the children of God. The Spirit of God is present with us. But we must in humility yield to our Heavenly Father and admit our need and ask for help. My friends, I think our application is quite simple. As we live as Jesus' witnesses here on earth, we cannot do it in our own strength. We will only fail and likely make things worse, not better. But our Heavenly Father gives the Spirit to all who ask of Him. So let us be a people who seek our Heavenly Father and we ask Him to empower us so that our lives would be lived filled with the Spirit, that we may be witnesses of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful promise, right? Wonderful promise. So in observing this text so far, we have seen that there is, there's some things which are not for us and some thing for us to receive. Now we get to the heart of the matter. Lastly, there is something for us to be You know, the big idea here, I think, for us to embrace is Jesus doesn't say that there's, like, there's something for us to do, right? Although we end up doing things. No, rather, he says there is something for us to be. We are to be witnesses. It's not like we say, hey, let's, let's go witnessing this afternoon. I've got 15 minutes and I'm all prayed up. Witnessing, to, uh, to be a witness is what Christ calls us to be. Now, at first glance, being a witness sounds hard and unnatural, but let me try to simplify the picture for you. And hopefully we'll see that being a witness is something that is really kind of easy <laughs> and natural. Think about what you tend to do when you find a great restaurant, a new one. Or, or there's this new movie you go to and you just love it. What comes easy and natural for you to do? Do you not just want to tell your friends? Do you not want to like post selfies on social media? Hashtag best movie ever. My friends, when the power of the Holy Spirit rests upon you, being Jesus' witness should flow naturally like that. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You know, I was thinking the other day, and some of you might think I'm weird, but I was thinking the other day, how come grown-ups don't have show and tell? Think about, I mean, talk about a guy's night, you know? Rum, 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 hey, <laughs> you know, show and tell, it'd be so much fun. Okay, maybe not. I'm the only guy. I'm the only one? No, I'm not. In school, it wasn't a true show-and-tell day. It was like the best day ever. <laughs> well, except for that time when Tisha Dore brought her little prized plastic horses for show-and-tell, and my brother's shop class got a hold of them and melted them in the forge. 
But I do remember one show and tell when I was in fifth grade. Uh, and I brought in my prized possession. It was an Elvis Presley 45 record. I dressed up as Elvis, even had a guitar. I rehearsed all this, you know. I played the record. I did my best Elvis Presley impersonation. I'm just a hunk of hunk of burning love. Fifth grader, right? Oh, my gosh. My friends, show and tell. I think I just put a bad image in somebody's mind forever. Sorry about that. I was in fifth grade. Okay. <laughs> show and tell. That, that's what it means to be a witness. Listen to me. Let me show you what I value in my life, and let me tell you why I value it so much. It's so simple. Show and tell. Let me show you what I value in my life. Let me tell you why I value it so much. First, being a witness of Jesus means that, that we have something to show the world. Do we not, Christians? And what is it that we are to display? Our self-righteousness? No. We are to show the world what it looks like to belong to Christ and his kingdom. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Being a witness involves showing to the world how Christ has made you into a new creation. What does it look like to, to have Christ set you free from the bondage of sin? To set you free from anxiety? To give you a certain hope in the present that triumphs over all earthly sorrows? What does it look like to have Jesus shepherd you? What does it look like to have the Word of God come alive inside of you? You know, I'm convinced that the disciples would have preferred that Jesus stuck around for decades to walk around with them so that they would have living proof that he rose from the dead. Don't even say a word, Jesus. Let me just show them your scars. See? Jesus, ro risen from the dead. Now believe, right? But God has a better plan. That Christ would come and dwell in us, not just in one place, but everywhere that God's people went, Christ would be on display. And that is how Christ's kingdom has spread from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. We are living proof that God's plan is good and right and belongs to us. To be Jesus' witness means that we are to show them Jesus the Jesus who's being formed in us. But it's not enough simply to show Christ to the world. We must tell the world of Christ too. There's this famous quote that Christians can tend to latch onto. I remember hearing it once. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Huh. Um, they attribute it to St. Francis of Assisi. It goes like this. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's a couple problems. One, St. Francis did not say this. And two, it creates a false dichotomy. 
all the writings, in all the writings of St. Francis, people have looked at him, there's nothing recorded that even comes close to such a statement. Even, none of his biographers even said anything even remotely close to that as well. And actually, when you look at St. Francis's life, he was quite the opposite. St. Francis tirelessly traveled all over, and he preached constantly. Some days it is said that he would travel to five different towns and stand on a bale of hay or stand in a doorway or on a porch and tell people about Jesus. It is recorded of him that sometimes he was so animated and passionate in his delivery that his feet moved as if he were dancing. (laughs) I think St. Francis would have appreciated Elvis Presley. That quote, which is attributed to St. Francis of, uh, to, uh, to Assisi, does the church some harm in that it sets up this, it sets showing and telling in opposition to each other. But we must be both showers and tellers. I think one of the best stories in the Bible that illustrates this story is the story of Jesus meeting that Samaritan woman at the well. And, and let me get a drink of water before we talk about that. Jesus, in the heat of the day, the disciples go away to, to stop and shop, and he's there at the well with her. And Jesus shows her and tells her about himself. Jesus knows that she's a troubled woman. She's been ostracized from her town because of her sexual sin. And, she, and he asks her for a cup of water to get the conversation going. She rolls her eyes at him. How is it that you, a Jew, ask of me, a Samaritan woman, for a cup of water? Jesus asked her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She was confused. She she thought he must be talking about some sort of physical water. And she, she pointed out some troubling issues. Sir, you have no cup. Mister, this well is really deep, and where do you get this so called living water? And besides, Jacob dug this well. You can't do any better than Jacob. You can't deliver any better water than what I've got here. Jesus replied, oh, if you only knew how good my water was. My water, if you drink it, will cure your thirst forever. And then inside of you, a spring of living water will well up to eternal life. Now she's interested. Sir, give me this water so I don't have to come back to this well during the heat of the day because there will be no more women around to harass me during the heat of the day. I just, I don't want to come back here. I just want this water to fix my problem. Now we're talking, says Jesus. But first, let me witness to the fact that this living water that I give removes your sin and causes you to live a holy life. Go and get your husband. I have no husband. Jesus already knew that, though. I know, he says, you've had five husbands. And the man you're with now, you haven't even taken the time to get married to him. He's not even your husband. And then she changes the subject to how Jews and Samaritans worship God differently. As if to say, you Jews have one way of relating to God. We Samaritans have another way. It really doesn't matter how you worship God. It's all the same. You ever heard that before? But Jesus says, Oh, it does matter how you worship. There's a day coming that you need to know about. 
And she cut them off at the pass. Because Samaritans had the same Bible as the Jews. Oh, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus, with kindness and love, pierced into his soul and said to her, I who speak to you am he. With those words, she came to believe. Jesus witnessed himself to her. He showed her that he cared for her, that he loved her, that he understood her sinful circumstances. And he told her, I can meet your needs. Trust in me. And he showed her and he told her and she came to believe. Now, the reason why I told that story is so I can tell you what took place next. Remember, she was an outcast in her town. The reason she was there at the heat of the noon is because she could not draw water in the cool of the morning with the other women in the village. They had rejected her for her sin. But Jesus welcomed her, forgave her, and she drank from the spring of living water that only Jesus can give. And then what did she do? She runs off. She makes a beeline to that very same town that looked down on her, humiliated her. The women who would walk along the street and go to the other side when she came by, she went to that very town. And here's what John records. So the women left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? I think he is, but why don't you just come and find out? They went out of the town and were coming to Jesus. She ran to town to tell everyone, come and see. And then we read, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This Samaritan woman hadn't been a Christian but 10 seconds. <laughs> she runs back into the town that despised her and was a witness to the love and the mercy of Christ towards her. Let me show you. Let me tell you. So this morning we've seen what Jesus means when he calls us to be his witnesses. Instead of gazing into the heavens, wondering what times or what seasons, how everything's just ripe for his return, Let's go to another prophecy conference and learn all these things. Perhaps we should stop gazing into heaven and be his witnesses. And we know that this is hard work. It's not easy. It's not easy to be a witness for Christ. It's tiring. It's frustrating. But the Father says, ask, and I will give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will give you the power, the power to want to be a witness the power to learn what it means to be a witness, the power to love well, a power to be holy so that the world sees us, sees you, and says something's different about you. People ask you out to lunch. I had it happen. When I became a Christian, I was kind of a notorious, my daughter said, I better be careful. I was like not the best guy. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> And I had lots of friends. I was living large. I had a lot of money. I had a business. And I was out at the clubs and worked hard and stayed up all night. 
And when I became a follower of Christ, he changed me. I became new. Some of those friends just fell away because they were just there for the party. And, but I had some genuine good friends. And I can't tell you how many times people would say, hey, Mark, um, can we go out to lunch this week or maybe hang out sometime? There's something different about you. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I want to hear what it is. I tell them, I tell them, I'd show and tell. Unfortunately, most of the time they would say, well, what? What would they say? I'm glad you found something that works for you. But I have had a couple friends come to Christ through my testimony. It's a beautiful thing to behold. My friends, think this through. Is there anything more needed in the world than for you to be a witness of Jesus? Is there anything that this world needs more than that? Would you rather cure cancer or be a witness to Jesus? I think you can do both. But I'm saying if there's a priority, witness to Jesus. Is there anything more lovely for you to show the world than how wonderful your Savior is? There's nothing. And guess what? Show and tell really is the best day ever. And we get to show them and tell them every day. Let's pray. Father, as we meditate on these words of Jesus and, and we appropriate them into our lives, we, on the one hand, we're so excited. This makes so much sense. This is who we've been made to be. And we have a story. You, you, we are new creations. We want the world around us to know. And, and yet, at the same time, we honestly say this seems hard. It seems more like a beach day um, than a witness day. But may we see that, that we can have both. In our lives, everywhere we go, we are new creations walking through your creation. And we are able to show people and tell people. We pray that Grace Church would be a church that is alive in Christ, living out this wonderful calling to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. Amen.